Our scripture reading for this morning is going to come from the book of Isaiah, chapter 33. You can find it on page 594. We're going to read from verses 17 to 24 from chapter 33. You can find that on page 594. Listen to what God says. Your eyes will behold the king and his beauty. They will see a land that stretches afar. Your heart will muse on the terror. Where is he who counted? Where is he who weighed the tribute? Where is he who counted the towers? You will see no more the insolent people, the people of an obscure speech that you cannot comprehend, stammering in a tongue that you cannot understand. Behold Zion, the city of our appointed feasts. Your eyes will see Jerusalem, an untroubled habitation, an immovable tent, whose stakes will never be plucked up, nor will any of its cords be broken. But there the Lord in majesty will be for us, a place of broad rivers and streams, where no galley with oars can go, nor majestic ship can pass. For the Lord is our judge, the Lord is our lawgiver, the Lord is our king, he will save us. Your cords hang loose, they cannot hold the mast firm in its place or keep the sails spread out. Then prey and spoil in abundance will be divided. Even the lame will take the prey, and no inhabitant will say, I am sick. The people who dwell there will be forgiven their iniquity. This is God's Word. Well, do keep your Bibles open at uh, Isaiah 33. And the themes that unfold there are very relevant to our lives today. If you imagine, for example, from the realm of the corporate world, some young guns who've been given great jobs, ignore the advice and the, uh, the insight of their senior management, and they make investments which, on the surface, at least sound like a good idea, but on the long run, lead to disaster when the market crashes. I imagine there would be no mercy shown, no bonus paid, no career prospects, because the corporate world is pretty ruthless, really, in the way it t- treats its failures. Take the area of our personal lives. There are will be people in your life who reject your advice, who abuse your generosity, who reject your affection. And should they run into disaster, they may very well come back to you, uh, throwing themselves, as it were, on your mercy, all teary-eyed and apologetic. And your inclination will possibly be like this. You may be tempted to think, well, it serves them right. Wouldn't you think that? Wouldn't you be tempted to say, well, you had your chance and you blew it? Wouldn't you be tempted to show them the door and say, walk ye out it? And uh, good riddance to bad rubbish. None of us likes to be spurned or ignored or underappreciated. And yet what we have when we look at the book of Isaiah is that as the prophet has been analyzing the relationship not between, not between God and the world so much, 
He has addressed the nations, the people out with Israel. He's, he's looked at them. What we would say from our perspective is the, the culture, the world uh, around us. He's looked at those people, but he has been most interested in analyzing the relationship between the Lord and his people. He's done that really from chapter 2 right to chapter 32. And in there, he's done a bit of a demolition job on God's people. He's watched a trajectory in their lives. It starts with fear. They begin to feel afraid. In the picture language that we've been given, while it was actually the historical, very real, concrete language of the reality of the story of Judah and Jerusalem, they would find themselves with an enemy, or they would find themselves with some economic problem, or political problem, or a military threat. And what happened? They would first of all be afraid. They would be terrified, full of fear. And in their fear, they would forget that God was a significant factor in their lives. And forgetting that God was a significant factor in their lives, they would look around for other sources of security, they would look for somebody else to help them. Somebody would get them out of the mess. They would, they would take the matter into their own hands and they would struggle and they would try very hard to resolve the challenge in, in, in their own way. And invariably, it didn't work out well. Invariably, they were left ashamed. <clears throat> they were left standing at the altar. And uh, the one who had pledged themselves to turn up for them didn't, just did not turn up. Uh, it's always my worst nightmare to stand there with someone at a marriage ceremony and the bride not turn up. Well, that happened again and again and again to God's people. They put their confidence. They believed promises. They looked around for help. And they were no-shows when the crunch came. That's a picture, really, of many Christian people and Frankly, it's a history, it's the history of the church. The church is an institution. When we start losing numbers, when we start contracting financially, then we look around for something that will boost the numbers. Perhaps what we need is a, a better program, a better music program, perhaps. Or we need some other program. We need, we need big jumble kind of screens, or we need technology, or we need, uh, we need to kind of start imitating what, what the world does so that we look a bit more like what the world does. So let's have a theater, not, not a church. I mean, this is not exactly what is normal in our culture. This is a, a weird kind of building in our culture. It doesn't really lend itself to the kind of mental image you have of something that is really powerful or important or is liable to gather crowds. And so what happens? We, in our fear, forget that we have a relationship with a God who has promised to be with us. And so we look around for other things that will resolve the problem. We put our confidence in those other things. The evangelical church all across the world is doing that. Different things in different locations, but nonetheless, that's what they're doing. And in doing so, the church is disobeying its Lord. And the message of this 33rd chapter is, what is God doing while we are doing what we want to do? 
And the answer is, God is waiting to hear from a disobedient church. Now you realize I'm not just talking about the institution, I'm talking about all of us. We are the church. We the people are the church. Now it's interesting that this last chapter in this section, which corresponds to the first chapter in the entire book, so chapter 1 and chapter 33 are similar in this respect, that they are not tied to any specific issue or period of time. They're, They're general. There are general principles. So in chapter 1, there is a kind of general deconstruction of the whole world, including God's people, everybody in the world, and a statement of how far the world is from its relationship with the God who made it. That's chapter 1. Then you have the concrete examples that you find from 2 to 32. And now here in chapter 33, it's generalized again. The principles are laid out. And these principles that you find in 33 apply to any group of God's people wherever they find themselves on the trajectory of history to the end of the human story. So they apply to us today. And in those chapters that have just been, God has been urging his people to come back to him. And here he is in chapter 33 giving us a kind of insight through the prophet of what it looks like whenever his people get the message and start to come back to him. What we learn from this chapter is three lessons. That while we are doing our thing, God is waiting to hear us. There's the first thing. God is waiting to hear from us. Verses 2 to 6. In many ways, Isaiah's whole ministry was to call an unwilling people to come back to their God. But what does it look like when we come back to God? That's really what verse 2 and following are teaching us. Here we hear the prophet himself. Isaiah models what it's like for people who've been wandering to come back to God. And this is what it looks like. When we come back to God, we reflect on what God has said to us. We think of the promises that God has spoken to us. So, for example, back in chapter 30, verse 18 This is what God had said to them. Therefore, the Lord waits to be gracious to you. And therefore, he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. Now, notice this. When you go to chapter 33, verse 2, you can see that this is what people do when they come back to God. They listen to God. They listen to God's word. They hear from him, and then when they speak to him, they use the language that he has used to them. So, what was the promise? God, the Lord, waits to be gracious. They come to him. Verse 2, O Lord, be gracious to us. The promise was, the Lord will be gracious to those and bless those who wait for him. So they come to God and they say, O Lord, be gracious to us. We wait for you. In other words, they've taken what God said seriously. Now they're talking to God and they're using God's language to God. Why would they do that? It's because of the very heart of what our relationship with God is, is communication. He speaks to us, we speak to Him. He sets the agenda. He introduces the conversation. We pick up on the themes that he raises and we talk back to God about the things that he has spoken to us. 
You find that all over the Bible. It's the basis of prayer. We hear the Word of God, then we speak to God on the terms that He has spoken to us. God said that He waits to be gracious. They go to God and they say, Oh God, You said You were waiting to be gracious. Be gracious to us. You said You were waiting to hear from us. Oh Lord, now we are speaking to You. Please hear us. You said that You would bless those who wait for You. Now Lord, having rushed around and done our own thing and exhausted ourselves in all of our foolishness, we now come to You and we wait for You. We wait for You to intervene and for You to bless us. In other words, for the very first time, we are hearing from God's people the language of faith. This is faith talking. And they are saying, faith says to God, we need You every day. I need You. Every hour, I need You. Be our arm. That is, be our strength. Be our, be our firm hold. Every morning, they say. And we've been looking around and we've tried, checked out Egypt and asked Egypt to come to our help and they didn't show. Earlier on, we went to Assyria, asked it to come to our help. They didn't show. Now, O oh Lord, we pray, be our salvation. Be our salvation. Please, you be our salvation. We've tried everybody else. We've tried the broken cisterns, Lord, and ah, the waters fail. We've tried everything. But now we're coming to you. It's taken a long time. But now they're coming back to God. And they're coming back and they're seeking grace from God. They want God to be gracious to them. Notice that. Grace is not a commodity that is transferable by an action like a sacrament. Grace is a quality in the character of God. They're asking God Himself to be gracious to them. So what is God doing? God's waiting to hear us. Secondly, God is waiting to save us or to rescue us. It's taken a long time to see that human power and wisdom is what it is. In the end, it is impotent and helpless. But now that they're calling on God, things are going to change. And the signal of that is in the very first verse. The very first verse of this chapter begins with a word translated ah, the kind of ah that you say when you go to the doctor and he has that thing he puts in your tongue and he says, say ah. It's very hard to say ah with that thing in your tongue. I know uh, someone needs to tell them that too, but, but, but there you go. It's, it's not that kind of ah, okay? It's translating a word which is also translated by the word woe. Not woe to the horse, another kind of woe. W-O-E, that one. It's a very bad word. It's a very difficult word. It's a, a curse word. It is meaning you are under the curse. The curse is coming on you. It's a very not good word. And it's used. Already it's been used six times. This is the seventh in this section. And every other time it's been used, it's been used about God's people. The church. 28 verse 1. Woe to the proud crown of Ephraim. Chapter 29, verse 1. Woe, Ariel, Ariel, the city where David encamped. In 29:15, Woe, you who hide deep from the Lord your counsel. Chapter 30, Woe, stubborn children. Chapter 31, Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help. 
Every time it's been addressed to the church in its disobedience. And disobedient church, that means disobedient believing people, are going to bring upon themselves all kinds of trouble and strife in their lives because of their disobedience to God. God will discipline them. He will chastise them. He will, to a degree, punish them. Not with eternal punishment, but with earthly troubles in order to get their attention, in order to make them see where they've gone wrong. But now you see they're coming back to God. And so chapter 33, one begins with woe, but this time the woe is directed against the enemy that they always feared, whoever the enemy might be at whatever point in history that enemy might be. Woe to you, destroyer. Your end has come. You thought in your day that you were punishing the church. You thought in your day that you were humiliating believers by your rationalistic ideas and your rationalistic teaching. You thought in your day you were going to see the rubbing out and extermination, at least, at least in terms of understanding and knowledge and, and belief of Christianity. But now it's your time. Your end has come. You who thought you were so powerful are going to be destroyed. You who betrayed other people are going to be betrayed. Your day has come. God has said, has written a line, put a line under your story. The end, the time is up for you. It's all over. It's all over. And so we find that God is going to intervene in the story of these people. As you glance down the passage, you find they talk about their heroes in verse 7. Or the envoys, the diplomats. The heroes are helpless. The diplomats are pointless. In verse, uh, in verse 8, the highways lie waste. The roads are impassable. The, the covenants, that is, the treaties. The treaties are worthless. Their enemies are ruthless. The people are hopeless. That's, that's the way it used to be. That was the story of their lives up to this point. Up to this point. But now in verse 10, now I will arise, says the Lord. Here is God's answer to their prayer. That word now is repeated three times in verse 10. Because all of our unbelief and uncertainty, for all of our unbelief and uncertainty, there is always a divine now. God waits for this moment, this now moment. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, made under the law, to redeem us who were under the law. God always has a now moment when He gets up, when He gets up to act. That's what He does here. He gets up to move, to act. In fact, the first words of verse 10, I will arise, are the action to engage an enemy. Then I will lift myself. I will lift myself. We don't have to lift him up. He does it himself. Now I will be exalted, he says. Each one of those phrases is used in, Je in Isaiah chapter 52 of the Messiah who is lifted up, who's exalted. In other words, it's underlining, you see, that this God, when he takes action, is all-sufficient. The all-sufficiency of God in action for our rescue is God in action in Christ for our refuge, 
for our rescue and refuge. The all-sufficiency of God in Christ for our rescue. God says, I am going to act. Verse 13, he calls others to acknowledge it. He calls on those in, in Zion, that is, those who are still around, who don't believe in God. He challenges them to, to action. He challenges them to hear, to listen to what God is doing in this action in Christ for the rescue of His people. He asks them to consider it. He asks those that enemy which had set itself up like the Tower of Babel to unify men and women into one worldwide empire in which God is excluded. And he says he's going to exalt himself. He's going to lift himself up higher, higher than that tower. He is going to exalt himself above every name that is named. He talks in verse 14 to the people of Zion, trembling has seized the godless. Here are people who are at an end of themselves. They've come to an end of all their self-sufficiency. They've begun to consider the big questions of life. They're beginning to see that these, these troubles they've been through are only earthly troubles. I mean, being maligned by people, being misrepresented in the media, having your buildings burnt, even being put to death yourself. These are all very temporal problems. They are real problems, but they are earthly problems. These people are beginning to consider we were getting worked up and we were looking everywhere for help when these very physical, material things were happening to us. But here's the big issue. Who among us can dwell with the consuming fire? We found that hard. Who among us can dwell with everlasting burnings? That's the real issue. My problem is not that there may be a financial crisis in the church or a church membership crisis in the church. My problem is not that we're not getting access to the media the way we used to do it, much as we would like to have. My problem is not that we're having a rough time from society around and in other parts of the world from others who want to destroy us. That's bad. But it is not as bad as facing hellfire, being separated from God, Therefore, I dare not go on in my disobedience and my disbelief, putting my confidence in everything and anything other than what has been revealed in Scripture from God. I dare not. These people are coming to their senses. And they're coming to see that they need to walk righteously and speak uprightly. And they need to get back into a right relationship with God. And they need to hear Him, come back to Him, and seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and let Him deal with all the rest. He waits to rescue us. And then thirdly, He waits to bless us. He begins a work in us now that He will complete when we enter His glory. Very interesting to look at the unpacking of this here. One of the big issues that Isaiah has been dealing with is our trusting the God who is invisible. That's the way we live our Christian lives. If I'm only confident in God when I'm sitting with a massive crowd of people in a building on Sundays, if I would have trouble trusting God if I was in a little church with just a few people, and some of them, most of them, maybe all of them except me, elderly, 
because you're saying you're elderly. I still think of myself as the 16-year-old, by the way, in church, especially this church. So old itself, you feel like a 16-year-old coming to it. But, but you know what I mean? If your faith can't survive that, if your faith can't survive being with a bunch of fuddy-duddies, if your faith can't survive unless you've got the coolest minister in town, in the coolest setup in town. If your faith can't survive that, you don't have faith. You don't have it. Faith operates where there are things unseen. Faith is the opposite of sight. What we see, we don't have faith in. Faith is believing in the invisibles. And throughout this book, Isaiah has been challenging the people of God. Do you really believe in God? Do you really trust God? But do you see? In verse 17, everything changes. There is coming a day when faith will be unnecessary. In fact, from verse 17 forward, you see, it's all about what you see. Right now, you see, you don't. You see, you don't see anything. Except that in a moment or two, put into your hands and into your mouth is bread and wine. Because God wants you to know that what you are hearing with your ear is as real as that bread and that wine, or whatever it is. It's as real as that. But there's coming a day, you see, he says, when you are going to see something. What are you going to see? Number one, you're going to see the king. You're going to see the king in his beauty. Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. He prayed for his disciples that there would come a day when they would see his glory. They would see it. This is a day when, when faith gives way to sight. They will see God. And he, by the way, is speaking to the individual here. Not just the crowd, but the individual believer. He's pointing their eyes to that heavenly future that lies, that age to come, that lies ahead of us. Your singular, your singular, your eyes will behold the king in his beauty. They will see the king. Who is the king? Well, they've talked about a human king. Or a figure that looks like a human king. They're given the king divine titles. Now here in chapter 33 and verse 22, we're told explicitly who the king is. The Lord is our king. Who is this king? Who is this king who is a human king, who operates at a human level in this world that Isaiah has described, that he can also call the Lord, who is also the Lord? How can you, how do you, how do you square that circle? How do you get from a human king to the divine king? And only with the coming of Jesus, only with the incarnation of God in Christ, does sense be made of what Isaiah is saying here. He's giving us the raw materials. The coming of Jesus puts it all together. Here is a figure who is both God and man in one person. Two natures, one person. The coming of Christ makes sense of this revelation in Isaiah as nothing else does. Christ comes to be 
the king. And he comes in his beauty. That's a strange word to use about a man, isn't it? Beautiful. Nobody ever calls men beautiful, at least not. They've never called me beautiful. So I doubt very much whether enemy, it's very rare for that word to be used, but there it is. But when you're a king, you see, kings do look pretty impressive. You're not used to kings here. You're just used to presidents. And you got rid of kings, and you were very wise in doing so. Uh, and, I, and I agree wholeheartedly with that, which is why I'm here and not there. But, but, uh, but kings... Were, were powerful, and usually they, they had all the accoutrements of kingship, and so they looked pretty impressive. And the Messiah King in Psalm 45, verse 2, is described actually as the most handsome of men. So there you, there you have it. Uh, and, and, uh, and it seems to be that what we're seeing described here is the king in his beauty, that is, the king in his regal, royal accoutrements, the king in the sheer splendor of his exalted kingship. Remember when Jesus was here on earth, Isaiah 53 tells us, he was despised because of his appearance. In one occasion, Jesus, who was only about 30 when he was killed, or 33 when he was killed, people said about him, he can't really be more than 50. So he didn't look 30, he looked more like 50, or maybe be older than 50, they're saying, but he can't be any more than 50. So haggard was his appearance because of the weight of his work that rested on him. But now he's exalted, you see. Now he's, now he's exalted up very high. Now he's coming in the glory and splendor of his resurrection body. Now you see, your eye will see the king in his beauty. It's pointing to his second coming. And not only that, but you will see the land that stretches afar. See, what, did, what was poor little Judah's problem all along? Its little problem all along was it only had a little bit of real estate there in the middle of Palestine. And there were all these big countries all around them, huge countries, Egypt and Assyria and Babylon and all of these people, all around them. And there they were just a little bit of, in this little tentative bit of real estate. And they were always afraid of losing it. They were always afraid of losing the promised land because the promises of God were tied to the promised land. And God had said, you know, when your enemies come, you leave it to me and I'll fight for you. You don't have to be afraid. I'll turn up. I will turn up. These other people won't turn up, but I will. I'll be there. And often he had. And he'd rescued them. And so they were always afraid of this little bit of land being lost. But when they see the king in his beauty, do you see? They see a land that stretches afar. There is no end to this land. It goes on for infinity. This land that they're going to inherit when they see the king in his beauty isn't limited to geography. It stretches forever. It just moves outwards infinitely in its size and strength. There is no way that you can ever explore the limits of this promised land. This great inheritance, this massive heritage that God promises to his people. And he uses the prospect of it to, to undermine their faith and encourage them. They're going to see the king one day. And not only see the king one day, we're going to see the city one day. Look at this. In verse, in verse 18, let's build up to it. Verse 18. 
your heart will muse on the terror. In other words, you'll think back. You'll think back to the way things were. You'll remember how it was that when you were anxious, that period of anxiety seemed to go on and on and on and on and on. Pain and tension and disease and grief seem to go on indefinitely. You will muse. You will muse on the terror, he says. You'll remember those things. You'll remember when you were there that you had questions. Here you've got people at home with God. And they're looking back and they're saying, where is the one who unsettled us all by uh, counting how much money was coming in? Verse 18. Where was the one? Where are those who who got everybody all upset about the fact that we were getting smaller or we were in danger and we needed to check the towers as strong enough and all the rest of it. Where are those people? They've all gone. They've gone. Look at verse 18, 19. You will no more see the insolent people, the people who attacked you, the people who scorned you, the people who misrepresented you, the people who were undermining you. You'll no longer see these people. What will you see? Behold, Zion, the city of our appointed feasts. Zion, the city of God. Behold it, see it. This is the place where people used to meet with God. On that day, you will meet with God face to face. This is the heavenly Zion that fulfills the destiny of the earthly Zion. There's a repetition of that phrase, your eyes will see. On that day, the promises will be transferred from the realm of expectation to the realm of experience. The promises of God will no longer be matters of hope, but matters of enjoyment. What will you see? You will see Jerusalem, an untroubled habitation, an immovable tent whose stakes will never be plucked up, nor will any of its cords be broken. You will see the tent of meeting. Only this tent of meeting is no longer a movable tent. This is fixed in its place. God has settled in one place forever. There will be no temple in that city. God himself will be the temple and his people. Here, the people of God have come truly home. And in that city, verse 21, the Lord in majesty will be for us. He will be for us. A whole number of things here. But if God is for us, who can be against us? He will be for us. What? A place of broad rivers and streams. Beautiful place. Beautiful place. Laid down for us. And no galley with oars can go. That is, no warship can get there. No cruise liner can get into that harbor, the harbor of that city. All that's great and important in the world cannot get into the harbor of that city. They're excluded. And look what he underlines. He underlines that the Lord, this Lord who is for us, the Lord is our judge. The rescuer. You know the judges in the Old Testament. They came to rescue the people. The Lord is our lawgiver. That is, He is the authority in our lives and the guide of our lives. And the Lord is our King. 
He will rescue us. He will save us. This had been the issue all along. Can we trust the Lord alone to save us? Here is the answer. When all else has failed, every stronghold built against us has been overthrown. When the world is excluded from the presence of God, then we'll understand that only God, the Lord alone, can save and secure us. The judge who should have judged us and condemned us acquits us. The law whose demands upon us are real and rightful The law has been met. Its demands have been met. The king throws open the gates of the city to his believing people that they may enter. So we're going to see the heavenly Jerusalem, Zion, people of God, home in the place God has prepared for them, secure in that place where God is at home and where we are at home with God. That's our destiny. And what of the meantime? In verse 23, Isaiah paints a picture of the people of God as they are on their way to that destiny. Do you see it? He pictures not a great battle cruiser, not a luxury cruise ship sailing majestically into New York Harbor. He rather pictures a sailing ship A ship that's been buffeted by the storm, a drifting hulk whose sails are torn, whose masts have fallen, whose rigging hangs loose. Your cords hang loose. They cannot hold the mast firm in its place or keep the sails spread out. Here is a ship bouncing aimlessly on the waves. Here is a ship that represents them as they are at the moment Isaiah is preaching to them. And at this moment when I'm speaking to you, here is the church, the way it looks in the world. It does not look in good shape. It does not look watertight. It does not look as if it's going anywhere except bouncing around aimlessly on the sea of life. The church looks like a vessel that is battle-scarred and buffeted by the storms of persecution and error and disbelief even in its crew. But that's not its destiny. There will yet be divine intervention on its behalf. For this ship that represents the people of God will be the only ship ever to make it into the harbor of the heavenly Zion. It was Augustine who said, outside of the church there is no salvation. He was right in the way he said it. The church is the people of God. Outside of the people of God, the one people of God, there is no salvation. But in the church, in the church of God, trusting in the Lord Jesus, there is salvation that will get you to that destination in the end. And you notice, everybody is going to to share in the abundance. It will be divided amongst everybody, even those who can't help themselves in this life, those who have limitations, special needs. They themselves will pick up the prey on that day. Do you notice that? Isn't that a lovely thought? And no inhabitant will say, I am sick. He will heal all of their diseases. And the people who dwell there will be forgiven their 
iniquity. This is the Zion towards which we're moving. This Zion which will come from God, comes down out of heaven from God, will be an untroubled settlement. Nothing unclean will ever enter it. No one that does anything detestable or false. The former things have passed away. Here is Zion. That's our destiny. Today we find ourselves in the old ship, bouncing around in the storm, the rigging torn, the cords waving in the wind. Some of us throwing up over the side. That's the church, isn't it? In its weakness, its humanity. But this is its destiny. This is its destiny. And what a beautiful picture of its destiny this is. As it finds its complete salvation. Full salvation. If I could just summarize what it says about salvation. It says the ultimate cause of it is God who planned and determined it. The immediate cause of it is faith in the promise of God. The effective cause of it, that is how does it work, is the Savior. And the clue to that actually is in verse 24. Verse 24 reads literally in the Hebrew, the people carried away in respect of our sins. What that suggests is that the answer to our problem of sin and guilt is a sin-bearing Savior. And our sins being carried away to Calvary that will never be seen again. The people are carried away in respect of their sins. They are separated from their sins The people are carried away into the presence of God, away from their sins. They will never see them again. Never see them again. That's the picture that Isaiah paints. Not just of the future of the people of God then, but of your future and mine. This is where we're going. This is our destiny. And we encourage each other as we gather, don't we? To look forward to that destiny. To remind each other that's where we're going. You say, I don't know how that translates into what I'm going to do tomorrow morning at work. What you're going to do tomorrow at work will one day disappear. And one day your body will disappear. It will be put into the ground and disappear. But you won't. And your inheritance won't. What's coming to you won't. And one day you will see the king in his beauty. And you'll see the land that stretches forever. And you'll see Zion, the city of our God. In the words of an old church paraphrase, his gracious hand shall wipe the tears from every weeping eye and pains and groans and griefs and fears and death itself shall die. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would please take your word to comfort, encourage, and cheer on your people as we run the race you've set before us in Christ. And 
for those of us here who don't know you, but who perhaps, as we've been listening in, have begun to find the promise of Christ an encouragement to our ears. We pray that you would see that through to their embracing him alone, asking him alone to be their Savior. Pray that in Jesus' strong name. Amen.